0: Hello there and welcome to part one of this course on uh, Introducing theology. Uh, the idea for this course is to provide six seminars that basically outline the theory and the practice of paro theology, because there's so much out there now uh, that it's difficult to know where to start. So my hope is that I can kind of outline the whole trajectory of parotheology theology in a in a basic way, um, and uh, it's a way kind of a way into the other material. So to do that, what I want to do is use my paro theology coin, and uh, the reason for that is I designed this coin to have all of the symbolic dimensions that kind of describe what power of theology is about. And the coin itself has six elements. And so the six elements relate to the six parts of this course. Uh, I'll just outline very briefly the elements, and then we'll jump into the first one. So the first element is actually not on the coin. Uh, It's the fact that there are actually two coins that are basically identical except that the happy reaper on one of the coins has a scar and the happy reaper on the other coin doesn't have a scar. And the reason why there are two coins is so that you can do a magic trick. And that's what we're gonna look at today, the magic trick of Christianity. Uh, Then on the coin, there are uh, five elements. Uh, On the obverse of the coin, There's writing around the side that says the lack of the secret or the secret of the lack, depending on where you start in the phrase. So we'll look at that in part two. In the middle of the obverse is the impossible cross, which we'll explore in part three. Then on the other side, there is uh, the happy reaper in the middle. So that will be part uh, four. on the top of the reverse it says non-membership coin and that will be part five and then at the bottom <clears throat> it says absurdo confido faith in the absurd and that, that will be part six so those are the elements of this course so starting off with a magic trick why are there two coins well basically for a traditional magic trick a traditional coin trick Uh, you have two coins and the reason for that is you're going to make a coin disappear and then you're going to make it reappear but the sleight of hand works because the coin that you make disappear isn't the same coin that appears Uh, the coin that you make disappear might be in the back of your neck it might be on your lap or up your sleeve depending on how you get rid of it and then the coin that reappears is one that you placed there earlier. And the individual who's watching the magic trick, they don't know that they're getting two different coins back. Uh, The mind struggles to find continuity. And so a lot of magic works because the mind is always looking for a type of continuity. Um, There's a magic trick I know that has the same kind of structure where you take a pack of cards. And the idea is I just take two cards off the top of the pack and put them on a table, right? And the two cards are the six of diamonds and the nine of hearts. Now I can see them and the other person can see them. So I go like, right, there's not gonna be any magic trick in terms of me guessing the cards, we both know what the cards are, but I want you to take those two cards and separately put them somewhere in the pack. So I'll flick the pack and they put one of the cards in the middle and then I flick the pack a second time, they put the second card into the middle. And so the two cards say the, the six of diamonds and nine of hearts. And then I, I hold the pack between my thumb and my forefinger or my whatever finger that's called. Uh, yeah, forefinger. And I shake the cards until they start to go everywhere. And at the very end, I've got two cards left in my fingers. And I turn them over and they're the two cards that you put into the middle of the pack. Except that they're not right um i turned over two cards which were the six of diamonds and the nine of hearts but what i did before i gave you the pack is i put the uh six of hearts and the nine of diamonds uh uh, on either side of the pack so so remember i give you the six of diamonds and the nine of hearts uh, but i've put the six of hearts and the nine of diamonds at either side of the pack So whenever I shake it, I'm left with those two cards. I turn them over and you think you're getting the same cards back because you remember that there was a six and a nine and you remember there were hearts and diamonds, but you don't remember what order they were in. And so you're impressed, right? So the cards you're getting back are not the cards that you put into the pack. And that's a basic dimension of like simple magic tricks. And you can describe this, it's often described as the three part structure. The first part is the pledge, and the pledge is where you hold up the object, the coin. Then there is the turn, which is the disappearance of the coin. And then there is the prestige, and the prestige is the return of the coin. Now why do I wanna start with this structure, which by the way will mark what we're doing over the six parts. The first two parts will primarily concentrate on the pledge, next two parts will primarily concentrate on the turn and the final two parts will primarily revolve around the prestige so why do i start there well interestingly um, in the 17th century there was an archbishop called tillotson and tillotson noticed something interesting he noticed that when magicians were doing tricks they often used the term hocus pocus at the key moment when something magical would happen basically the moment when they would pull back the curtain and the dove that they had hidden wouldn't be there right? until it's been noticed that hocus pocus sounded a lot like hawk S. corpus until it's been worked out and then there's no like definitive evidence of this but it seems you know potentially pretty accurate he was like oh uh, the magicians are saying hocus pocus as a type of mockery of the Eucharist, right? Uh, where the priest says, "hocus corpus, when the bread and the wine become the body and blood of Christ within Catholicism. And Tillotson said, well, no, that the Christianity is not a magic trick. The Eucharist isn't a magic trick. Uh, it's not a miracle, like nothing magical happens. And it's also not some sort of trickery. Uh, He is a good Enlightenment Protestant said Communion is an act of remembrance. That's what it is, an act of remembrance. So what you have here is you have the Catholics who are saying at the time that a miracle happens and the bread and the wine change in relation to their very being. Then you have the magicians who are saying no, it's just like a weird kind of magic trick, right? Uh, And then you have Tillotson who's saying it's not a magic trick, it's not a miracle, it's an act of remembrance. Now in relation to this uh, I think it's the magicians who have had the deep insight and so what I want to argue today and over these six parts is that actually we could approach theology and Christianity as a type of magic trick, a very important magic trick, a magic trick that has the ability to um, bring a certain liberation freedom or cure to our lives both our personal lives and our political lives that it has a universalist dimension as in it's a message for everybody and it is a message of hope and salvation and freedom but in a very concrete way and that actually by understanding it as a type of magic trick we can begin to understand what that liberation is and this is the core work and world of theology. It is an attempt to bring to the light the uh, liberating message that I think is embedded within theology and theological tradition. And also to develop practices that help us enter into that liberation and that freedom. Um, by the way, this is Hocus Pocus isn't the only thing uh, connected to religion and magic. Uh, another aspect of that is uh, magicians often talk about the patter. And the patter is basically where I talk to you to distract you, to kind of lull you into like almost like a hypnotic state. You're listening so intently that you don't notice that I've done a little bit of uh, misdirection. And patter likely comes from the religious term paternoster which is the repetitive saying of the lord's prayer that the monks and the nuns would do uh, during devotions so there's there's some kind of interesting connections there so you have the pledge the object you have the turn the disappearance of the object you have the prestige the return of the object and we'll return to this at the end of this uh, set series But that three-part structure can be seen in the Eucharist. There is the bread and the wine, there is the disappearance of it in your body, and then there is the return of the body in your actions. Right? There seems to be a three-part structure. Uh, Three-part structures can be found all the time in philosophy. Um, They're called dialectics. Often there is one position, then there is the opposite position, and then you move into a third position. and the third position is the prestige. Okay, so we have to start somewhere. What is the pledge of Christianity? Right, what is the pledge that theology is attempting to explore? The object that is going to be made to disappear and then reappear in a slightly different guise. Well, in a nutshell, it is the sacred object. I wanna say that the, the thing that Uh, paro theology seeks to render invisible to to dissipate into thin air is the sacred object what is the sacred object well the sacred object is any object that you think will bring wholeness and completeness to your life the object that that you seek to grasp in order to find some sort of fulfillment some sort of oceanic oneness now you may not you know consciously believe in such an object but we often act as if we believe in some sort of object whether it's fame whether it's money whether it's a particular person or particular objects particular lifestyle there are things that we give ourselves over to thinking that if only we could get that things would be amazing and the problem with this type of thinking is that we're depressed when we don't get the thing that we want But we're also depressed or melancholic when we actually get it, right? So there's these objects that we spend all of our time trying to get, we can't grasp. And yet if we do grasp them, there's a sense in which they always let us down. Now, they might not let us down in small ways, but in terms of if we think it's gonna bring some sort of wholeness and completeness, it, it dissipates. That's the sacred object, and psychoanalysis is called the lost object. And it's called the lost object, uh, not in the sense that it's something that you once had and now you don't have, but rather an object that's always been lost, an object that from the very beginning you never had, that's not there, but that you experience as lost and it drives you. Now this is caught beautifully in the Oedipus complex, the story of Oedipus, where this guy wants to sleep with his mother, right? but his father is in the way, he kills his father, he sleeps with his mother, not knowing it's his mother, but he sleeps with his mother, which is what he gets, what he wants, and it's a disaster, right? an absolute disaster. Now, what does that mean? Now, if you break it down to a structure, right, that's underlying structural dimensions, you have Oedipus, who is an individual who is seeking something. You have the mother, who is a symbol of returning to that oceanic oneness. And you have the father who is a type of prohibition getting in the way of you getting the oneness. And in the story, Oedipus breaks through the prohibition, gets what he wants, what he thinks will make him whole, and it's a disaster. And that is a type of story about the the human dilemma, that we're often pursuing something that we really want, and we're unhappy if we don't get it, and we're unhappy if we do. That's why Schopenhauer said that we live in a pendulum swing between boredom and suffering, right, or between depression and melancholy. Depression, the sadness of not getting what you want, and the melancholy, which is the sadness of getting what you want. Now, um, this is an interesting story because actually the, the biblical text starts with a type of Jewish Oedipal story. You have Adam and Eve in a garden. You have an object a piece of fruit and then you have a prohibition saying you can't have it and adam and eve break through the prohibition they grasp the fruit which they think will make them like god i.e., lack the lack be whole and complete but when they eat it it's not a blessing it's a curse it's a disaster right now in psychoanalysis you have a thing called the superego which is kind of like a voice that keeps on telling you that you have to do something in order to be complete, in order to be better, right? It's always telling you that you're not enough, you're not enough, right? And in the the biblical text, you have the serpent, which is the superego injunction that says, if you get that, then you'll be whole and complete. And yet it's that very call that's telling you that you can be complete if you get the piece of fruit that deepens your experience of not being complete makes you dissatisfied right so that's the that's the interesting dimension of the story is how the the promise of satisfaction is actually the very thing that births dissatisfaction and then they break through the prohibition they get the piece of fruit and say the rest is history right um so We start off the text with just a very um, basic psychoanalytic insight that Freud brings out with the Oedipus complex. Uh, And the mother can be seen here as the sacred object. Now, what makes the object desirable in an excessive way is the prohibition. The moment you say you can't have that, is the the moment when it can become something special not just like another object in the world but something that is better than every other object in the world right it's the very prohibition uh, this is what the term making love used to mean um, it used to mean a type of prohibition that generated love so two people didn't make love uh, a third person made love the chaperone right so two people would go on a date and they would go with the chaperone And we would think consciously that the role of the chaperone is to protect the two people, to make sure they do nothing untoward, right? But actually the role of the chaperone was to be an obstacle that would generate desire, so that the two people could begin to fantasize about what they could do if the chaperone wasn't there to stop it. So in these school dances in a Catholic church or something where the the priests are walking around making sure that the boys and the girls aren't doing anything too bad, aren't too close, in a way, they're the ones who are making love. They are generating a type of desire. They're making this desi- this excessive desire, which if it doesn't exist, if you don't have the obstacle, can often just not, not occur, not happen. Which is why a lot of dating apps are so difficult because in taking away obstacles and the more dating apps promise to take away the obstacles, the more they take away the desire that the obstacles generate, right? So people have to create their own obstacles. Um, now, interestingly, the prohibition is, gener- is generating or is, is prohibiting something that's impossible anyway. So it's a in- weird thing that the prohibition uh, stops you from, from having what you can't get anyway, which is that type of wholeness and oneness. Now, that's something we're going to go into in more depth in part two, so I won't go too deeply into that now. But this idea that that we feel this type of lack, we feel this type of uh, uh, something missing in our lives that is generated by the prohibitions in, in life, the things that stop us from From getting something are actually the things that generate that experience of lack and get us to be even more frenetically obsessed with transgressing the the boundaries and getting the thing so that's what the sacred object is I want to mention two things then about it is when you use the word object you're talking about either something that exists like the camera I'm looking at or you're talking about a goal the object of this seminar is to describe theology. So it's either an object that you can grasp, that you can touch, that you can taste or smell or see, right? Or it's a, a goal that you have in mind. Sacred object is more ethereal. It's kind of like it exists in its non-existence. So it's a very special type of object. Uh, Slavoj Žižek, the philosopher, paraphrased the work of Lacan once, or a uh, thought of Lacan, by saying, uh, "God has every perfection, except one. He doesn't exist." And uh, so this phrase is interesting. It actually connects with this scholastic debate about the perfections of God and whether existence is a perfection. So it's a, it's connecting a little bit with a, a scholastic argument um, that Anselm used, but. Basically, whenever Shizek is referencing God here, he doesn't mean God. He means the sacred object or the lost object. He's saying that the sacred object has every perfection. So whenever we're in the world and we have something that we so want that will fulfill us, that will make us whole, that will make everything good. It has every perfection. It promises so much. The only thing it doesn't have is existence <laughs> so that when we actually grasp something that we think will do that we're left with nothing but a type of dead cold rock again Shizek has a beautiful way of describing this uh, he references uh, some creationists who believe that fossils were put there uh, by god in order to make the earth look old right so fossils look old and we pull them out of the earth they seem like they're millions of years old but actually they're only six thousand or seven thousand years old they're just made to look old Uh, so a fossil is a fossilized remains of something that never existed and Shizek says that's a beautiful analogy for the sacred object right it's an object that only exists as a fossil You get it and you're left with a fossil of something that never actually existed. It's the fossil of something that never was. Um, The other part of, as I said, an object is goal-oriented. We're always seeking to get things. The sacred object uh, keeps our desire moving precisely in not getting it, in revolving around it. So our desire is maintained precisely by being like a planet orbiting the. orbiting uh, the Sun right the Sun being the sacred object we are this rock that orbits it and the although we think we want the object the thing that we think will make us whole and complete often the closer we get to it the more we realize that it's not going to work and the more we often unconsciously prevent ourselves from getting it precisely because there's a part of us that knows that if we get it we will be confronted with the terror that it doesn't actually work So then, the sacred object is anything that you think will make you whole and complete, right? And unlike a regular object, it doesn't exist. It has every perfection except for existence. And it's uh, destroyed by being grasped. We kind of want to revolve around it. So it's different from regular objects that exist and that you aim towards. And so there's a different type of desire for the sacred object. It's not just a desire like for tea or coffee or to see friends. It is a drive to get it, this obsessional drive to somehow get this because there's a part of us that is missing that this will fix. Um, So I wanna mention three ways in which we relate to this sacred object. Most of us, anyway, right? There's another dimension we could look into, but this is the primary three ways that we relate to the sacred object. The first is we never get it, right? That's the obvious one. Is we're always pursuing it, and if we get the thing, then we have to think of another way. So if if your sacred object is writing a book, then once you've written the book, you kind of go, well, I want to write two books, or I want to win an award, or I want to do this or that. You have to kind of, in a way, keep moving the goalposts because what you got didn't actually work, right? So one dimension of the sacred object is that we can be constantly pursuing it, frenetically, frantically moving towards it, never getting it, exhausting ourselves in the process. Secondly, we can imagine that other people have it. Uh, We can call this the non-castrated other. We look around and we imagine that other people have the thing that, that, makes them happy and complete and there's two forms of that jealousy and envy jealousy is where you see someone with something that you want they have this thing they have this job or this partner or this lifestyle that if only you could have right then i would be happy so you're jealous of them and what they have envy is slightly different envy is where you want The type of relationship the other person has with their object, right? So it's not that you want the object as such, but you want the type of relationship they have. So, for example, you might not want to have the your your friend's partner. You're like I desire that that man or that woman, right? You might desire the type of relationship they have, and you look at the type of relationship they have, and you yearn for that. So one is a yearning for the thing that the other person has. And the other is a yearning for the type of relationship they have with their things. Uh, And both of these are a type of mimetic desire, right? Where we mimic and we learn to desire through looking at what other people desire. We want those things. So that's the second way that we can relate to it. And that causes all sorts of problems because we hate the other for it. We sometimes want to take what the other has away from them, because they seem like they have perfection. So in Los Angeles, it's an incredible place for the fantasy of the non-castrated other, where you're walking around and people have a certain look and have a a certain kind of lifestyle that seems to emanate, um, that they have everything that they want and need. And it's only when you get close that you can kind of see behind the veneer, behind the facade. So uh, the third thing, what was the third? Um, uh, Oh yes, the third uh, way you can relate to the lost object is by pretending you have it, right? Now by pretending you have it, what that means is you exhibit the lifestyle that allows other people to feel jealous or envious. Uh, You know that old saying, uh, was it a uh, revenge, or sorry, success is the, the sweetest revenge, right? Um, the idea that if you can pretend that your life is great and wonderful and brilliant, other people will look at it and you kind of get a certain substitute pleasure of the uh, knowing that other people envy you and are jealous of you. So in these three types of relationship, you don't get the sacred object, uh, but you get something else. Um, and there's a certain pleasure connected to all three like there is a certain pleasure in pursuit although we don't often feel it we often feel it as an oppression but there's something we can get out of this movement this pursuit for the thing we can't get and of course there's a certain pleasure out of jealousy and envy right we can often find it so sweet to imagine you know hurting the other or actually hurting the other happens all the time you know fights on a saturday night outside the pub are often fueled by the fantasy that some other has something, right? Um, uh, Or is trying to take something from you, right? So, um, and then the third is the pleasure of pretending you have the sacred object. But all three of these are destructive. All three of these relations to the sacred object damage us, right, in various ways. And so the final thing I wanna say about the sacred object here is um, that this resonates with a notion of sin now i I want to talk about sin in a philosophically rigorous way not in a terms of a confessional theological way Uh, so in terms of a kind of a rigorous philosophical way the word sin can be described not as doing something bad or doing something wrong but rather as a certain type of relationship to the sacred object so i want to mention three uh dimensions of sin what can be called the ontological the ontic and the moral so the onto the ontic and the moral so what's the what's the ontological well ontological simply means nature of being right so the ontological dimension of sin simply means that there is an original lack there is an original sense in which we have a yearning a longing when we enter the world yearning and desire is evidence of a lack, right? We desire because we don't have something. We we make progress and we change because there's something that we feel is missing. So it's, it's a dimension of human subjectivity. Uh, if we could imagine being without lack, uh, there would be no movement, there would be nothing, right? It would just be a pure substance. So there's something ontological about lack that, that this desire, is part of what it means to be human so that's the first dimension the second dimension then is we place things into the space of the lack that's the ontic ontic just means beings things so ontological means the nature of reality ontic means the things that are in reality so at the ontic dimension of sin is simply that the various objects that we think will fill the lack. And that can be anything. It can be anything from a new car to a different partner to a different home to stamp collecting, right? Anything can be, uh, and when I say stamp collecting, it sounds silly, but actually if you're an obsessional person, you know, you may obsessively be collecting something very, very insignificant, um, but frantically trying to um, uh, collect every magazine, right? in In a series because in one sense there's you you don't like the gaps in the magazines because you don't like the gap within yourself right so you're trying to fill the gap by filling up all the magazines and having every single one that's why the magazine companies advertise these limited edition 12 sets because they're trying to appeal to obsessive people who want all 12 who can't stand the lack because they can't stand the lack within them so The ontic dimension is anything, whatever it is concretely that you put into the lack that you think will fill it. And that could be any this infinity, right? That comes down to people's personal history. And then there is the moral dimension. The moral dimension is what you will do in order to get that or how you live when you resign yourself to not getting it. Right? So whether that means alcoholism, domestic abuse, uh, outbursts of anger, lying, or stepping over people to get this, uh, destroying relationships and destroying yourself, um, this frenetic pursuit of the object or this renunciation of the object both create incredibly damaging realities. And I would say realities that get to the heart of human evil. Right. There's, there's destruction in the world, and in the animal world, but we're talking about a particularly human type of destruction, which is related to and revolves around the pursuit of the sacred object or the renunciation of the sacred object, uh, in which you kind of like try to say, oh, it doesn't matter, you know, I'll never get it. So both of these lead to very... Poisonous personal relationships and poisonous political projects. I mean, just to name one thing that comes out of this uh, scapegoating: if you can't get the thing that you think you need or want, you'll maybe blame a community that they're there at fault. Whatever group it is, if only we could get rid of them, then everything would be better, right? So your fantasy that. The sacred object is just at the other side of those people who we need to get rid of. And there's a lot of pleasure you get from that because it, it, it allows you to avoid the deeper trauma that I'll talk about in a second, the deeper trauma of realizing nothing's going to ultimately work. Now there's better and worse ways of not getting what you want, but there's nothing that is going to fix everything in some sort of magical utopic way. So that's the scapegoating mechanism, comes straight out of this type of denial of the lack, the attempt frenetically and frantically to, to fill it, to somehow kind of render it gone. And our lives continue to, to re- revolve around this. Okay, so what about the turn? Well, the turn is the disappearance of the sacred object. And just very briefly, I'll talk about the turn, the prestige here, because we're going to go into that in more depth in the later parts. But the turn is basically the realization that whatever you're pursuing, whatever it is that you want to grasp that will fix everything doesn't exist. This is deeply traumatic, but it's also deeply liberating. Right? It's both right. It's this dialectic you find it like it's terrifying to kind of go hold on a second you mean i have to tarry with and find a way to live with a certain type of desire and a certain type of lack But at the same time, it frees you from the frenetic pursuit of something you can't get. It frees you from the fantasy of others having it that you just want to get rid of or hurt. And it frees you from this silly kind of pretending that you have it in order to kind of evoke other people's desire, other people's jealousy, other people's envy. So it frees you from the the power of the sacred object. But it's a massive cost. The cost is phenomenal. The cost seems like nihilism. You know, seems like a, a relativism, a pure falling into the void. That's why we avoid the void. We avoid the gaze of this lack in any way we can, right? We, we don't want to go there. We want to avoid confronting it. Um, I want to tell you the story about Orpheus and Eurydices, because I think this captures the turn very nicely. In Greek mythology, the story goes that Orpheus, who is the the son of uh, the god Apollo, so descended from gods, falls in love with Eurydice, And uh, they have a short but beautiful marriage. And yet there is a prophecy. And the prophecy says that uh, this love will be short lived. Something disastrous will happen. And sure enough, when Eurydice is out one day, she gets bitten by a snake. Uh, she dies instantly and goes into uh, the underworld which is guarded by Hades himself and Cerberus the three-headed dog well Orpheus is distraught he doesn't know what to do and so he does what is almost impossible he goes into the underworld now he is uh, this master musician and he's able to play music that can seduce anybody, right? So he goes into the underworld. He's able to tame Cer- uh, Cerberus. And he's able to win over Hades. He's, so he's done this incredible task that would destroy any mortal and most gods. He's there. He's talking to Hades. And Hades is so impressed. He says, okay, I will let Eurydices leave the underworld. But you have to do one thing there's always something you have to do right so it wouldn't be a story without it so what's he have to do well you're imagining it's going to be something pretty difficult he's going to have to slay some monster or whatever but actually Orpheus has already shown that he is courageous that he is brave that he fears nothing right he's gone into the underworld so it's like right whatever it is he has to do this guy can do it but Hades gives him a bizarrely simple task he says all you have to do is walk out of Hades or walk out of the underworld. Eurydices will follow you and don't look round. If you look round, she will be taken back into the underworld, but if you don't look, you just play your music and walk out, she will walk with you. Orpheus is like, easy. So Orpheus starts to walk to, out of the underworld, but just feet away from the exit, he loses his nerve and he wonders is Eurydice really following him is she really there and so he glances back and he sees her and he sees her as she is pulled back into the underworld forever right now on the surface this is a story about uh, Orpheus being an idiot right being too impatient losing his nerve at the last minute right but If it was that kind of story, then it wouldn't really have any universal appeal, right? It wouldn't be a, a myth in the sense of telling us something deeply true about what it is to be human. So is there a different way of reading it? Well, yeah, basically you can see that potentially Orpheus wants the memory of Eurydice and the memory of what they had more than wanting her back, not consciously, but unconsciously. In other words, they've had this short, incredibly intense honeymoon relationship, which was probably beginning to, you know, uh, become normal, become mediocre. And then Eurydice dies. And so now Orpheus has the memory of something, the memory of something that is not really something, right? That, that perfect type of relationship only kind of exists in our minds in moments that we can kind of craft it's not really about a long-term relationship with with all its mundane things and its difficulties and its sufferings and so Orpheus why does he look round in the last moment well so that he can see her maintain the memory of her and the memory of what could have been and so he would prefer to lose her than to lose the memory of a perfect relationship and it's the memory of something that doesn't exist that's the other thing, so what's called a simulacra, a copy of something that doesn't have an original, right? Is that, That's what a lost object is, is a, uh, the thing that we get is a copy without an original. And it sounds like a crazy thing at first, but actually this is very common uh, uh, experience in human behavior, that the closer we get to the thing that we think will fix us, the more we can often unconsciously rebel against it because we realise it doesn't work. It can so for example, if you've been in a couple of relationships and they haven't worked, and then you go into another relationship, then maybe the previous two were just contingently didn't work. There were some issues that came in and it just they fell apart. The third relationship you might actually destroy yourself, right, without even realizing it. Because you kind of already know that it's probably going to become mundane. And so, to maintain the notion that there could be a perfect relationship, you have to, at the last minute when things are starting to work, kind of self destructed in some kind of way. This is also beautifully caught in a parable that uh, René Girard recalls, where a man is told that in a rocky field, there is a treasure under one of the rocks. And so the man goes in and starts to pull up all of these rocks to try to find the treasure. Well, eventually, says uh, Girard, the man will seek a rock so heavy, he cannot lift it. Which means basically the guy's looking for this treasure, can't find it, starts to get the realization that maybe the treasure doesn't exist. And so he finds a rock so heavy that he can't lift it, so as to retain the fantasy that the treasure exists, even though he can't get it. This is why as well, people who are religious often prefer a meaning over meaninglessness even if the meaning is damaging to them, right? Whereas God is punishing us because God hates us and hates what we have done. Sounds weird that you would have a a, a way of rendering your cancer say meaningful, but that's actually less traumatic than the possibility that there is no meaning to it, right? No metaphysical meaning at all. So you would prefer to have a meaning that is damaging to you than lifting the rock and realizing that there is no meaning. So that's the nihilism of the turn. It's this terrifying experience that the thing you want, the sacred object, doesn't exist. It's that experience of that loss. And yet, as I say, there is this liberating moment within that horror. It is both harrowing and curative. But the trick can't stop there with the turn. Otherwise, you end up with a type of quietism, a type of quiet despair, where the uh, plan is to get rid of your desire, to try to live without desire, to try to die before you die. So it's kind of like the model of death before death. But we want life before death, not death before death. So what does life before death mean? Well, it means the prestige. It means the return of the sacred, right? Now, the sacred in part one is the object that we love. But the sacred that we get back in the prestige is not the sacred as an object that we love, but rather as the depth dimension we experience in the act of love itself. Very, very small change, but a radically different change. In other words, the third part is where we realize that there's something pleasurable in not getting what we want there is something about struggle and desire that is not just painful that we want to get rid of with fullness but there's something about it that is generative transformative that brings depth to our lives and actually the problem is simply our inability to enjoy our enjoyment in other words to enjoy our struggles and our commitment to causes and our commitment to other people, right? It has to be a shift in our perception in which we find the meaning of life in our commitment to life. And love is the perfect example of this, right? Um, Well, first of all, you can say about love three things. You know, love does not exist. Love is not sublime and love is not meaningful. And by that, what I mean is, love does not exist as you can't point it out you can't find it in a laboratory and hold it up right Uh, love is not sublime again it's not something that you point to like the sun like a sunset and it's not meaningful however uh, love is what brings things into existence it's what renders things sublime and it's what makes the world meaningful now what i mean by that is If you're in the world, you're walking around, you see lots of people in the world, right? You're always engaging with people, right? When you go into shops, when you buy food, when you get an Uber, you're you're engaging with people all over. But they don't properly exist. Because to exist means to stand out. And they don't stand out, they're part of basically the workings of the world. They're mechanisms, they're functions. And you may be polite to the person at the train station or whatever, but they're ultimately a function. But when you see somebody that you love, they exist, they stand out from the the kind of gray background. They're not just a function, right? So love is what brings things into existence, standing out. Just like in in the, the Torah when it talks about the earth is formless and void, and then the word brings forth life from the void, right? That's what, is, that's what love does. It kind of out of the, the formlessness of function, it brings this depth and there's a singularity. There's someone I love, they are in color, right? So in a way, when you love something, it stands out, it becomes something. Secondly, say love's not sublime, but it renders things sublime. So when you love someone or love a cause, that, that person or that cause has um, an additional dimension to them. Not an extra heart like in Doctor Who or whatever, an extra physical thing, but rather everything they are and do or the thing about that cause has this sublimity to it. It has this beauty. It's not just one thing among many. And thirdly, say, love is not meaningful. It renders the world meaningful. So if you're in love, even if you don't believe the world is meaningful, right? So you say, I don't think the world has any ultimate meaning. But in love, you can't help but experience the world as meaningful. Even if you don't believe it is, you, you existentially experience it as meaningful. And if you don't love, and you've experienced the loss of love, and you're in that place where your desire is, is, is almost flatlining, even if you believe that the world is meaningful, you can't help but experience it as meaningless, right? So there's, there's this element to love that it, it's not, it, when you treat it as an object that exists, that's sublime, that's meaningful, you end up with nothing. But when you forget about it as an object and you engage in love, it becomes the most preeminently existing, sublime, and meaningful of all things, right? So the moment you stop relating to it as a thing and engage with love, it becomes a kind of like a, 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 a hyper version of those three. Uh, you can say love does not exist, it insists, So John Caputo talks about God as an insistent reality, not an existent reality. It's something that insists, makes a demand, pulls us out of the world, right, and into the world. Um, Also, an important part about love is love is all about yearning and desire. Now, the thing about yearning is that you yearn for what you do not have. You yearn because of a certain lack. Now, technically, if you fill the lack, you get rid of the yearning and in everyday desire that's the that's the point the point is to bring homeostasis the point is that you feel hungry so you feel a kind of dissatisfaction you eat and that's quelled and then you're happy where in a holiday you feel stressed you go on holiday you no longer feel stressed right love is like on the other side of this because love is like a hunger again like it actually generates hunger or it generates stress it, it generates um a lack of harmony right there's a certain yearning in love but it's a full desire not an empty desire it's a full type of yearning not an empty type of yearning in other words it's a yearning that is satisfying in its dissatisfaction it's a yearning that renders the world meaningful and giving it depth rather than rendering it meaningless and something that has to be overcome so the the prestige of christianity that I'm exploring in theology, is the notion that we no longer pursue enjoyment or sorry, pleasure, rather enjoyment. So enjoyment has the word joy in it. Joy is a theological concept, right? So what is pleasure? Well, pleasure is kind of the happiness you get from achieving a certain goal that you wanted. Right. But enjoyment, is the pleasure you get or the happiness you get from not achieving a goal, right? But rather continuing on to try to grasp something. It's kind of like a type of happiness that comes uh, indirectly through the pursuit of something you find meaningful. And C.S. Lewis talks about this when he talks about joy. Joy is precisely a type of happiness in what you do not have. So for him, it's connected to the utopic vision of heaven. He says, joy is when you get a sense of the heavenly that isn't there, right? So it's not depressing, it's actually pleasurable. And uh, think about a child at Christmas, they get a certain happiness when they open the Christmas present, right? But they get a certain enjoyment in waiting every day and they're run up to Christmas now the problem is they don't enjoy their enjoyment sometimes they they're having temper tantrums they can't wait to get to the point where they open the present because they still think that the real uh, the real happiness isn't opening the present they don't realize that that's often the big letdown right um, but they're enjoying they're getting something out of the waiting or when you're waiting for a holiday and the point of that is, I think the best example of it in contemporary culture, because most of our contemporary culture is based on the pleasure, right? P- principle is based on trying to get the thing that will bring us pleasure. Um, but the, the biggest example of what's called the reality principle is in sport. Sport's one of the few areas where we can see people enjoying the, uh, the, the never-ending nature of it, right? So if you're watching football, this is why I never liked sports, right? Because nobody ever wins, right? Nobody ever wins football, the game. that just keeps on going, even if they have these big matches at the end of the year, every four years or whatever, it's like, then it just keeps going, right? Um, there's no no point where they go, right, football ends on this date, and we will find the winner of the football, and they give them the football, and they say, you've won that game, and then we're gonna start a new game, right? Um, there's a certain way in which it's just deferred, always. and you can understand why this is enjoyment. If you imagine your team winning everything, your team winning everything would not be fun, right? It would get terrible. And there's times where teams win everything and it's, it's depressing, right? You want your team to win and to lose and you get into the story. You get, and it's great, you get the wins and the wins are, are kind of pleasurable. But it's the enjoyment of working with your team and being there through thick and thin and knowing the history and, and looking for where they're gonna be next year. It's that's where the enjoyment is, right? And that's where you get the, the, a certain type of um, deep kind of pleasure from that. Right? So that's kind of joy. So then to sum up, right? What I've said here in part one is that in the magic trick, there is the three parts, the pledge, the turn and the prestige. The pledge of reality and the pledge of Christianity is the sacred object. We're all caught up with the sense of a lack and something that we want that will fill that lack that causes all sorts of problems within ourselves and with our relationships with others. It causes all sorts of damage to the environment, uh, uh, politically and personally. Then there's the turn, which is that experience that's harrowing and liberating where we realize that the sacred object doesn't exist we directly confront that and it's terrifying but that allows us to move to a third place which is where the sacred returns not as the object that we love but the depth dimension in love itself Uh, and there therefore we move into the realm of enjoyment and the realm in which we can give ourselves over to a type of vocation which never ends and to give one practical example of what that looks like, in my life, one of the examples is paratheology. Right? The reason why I'm doing a course trying to explain it is because every time I try to explain it, I feel. But paratheology is nothing. At least it wasn't anything at the beginning. it was just a word. But every time I try to explain it, I feel at explaining it. And then I go, I have to explain it again. I have to write another book. I have to do another course, right? I want to really get to it. I really want to get to the heart of it, right? But every time I do it, it's a failure. And yet each of those failures is a productive failure. It actually increases a body of knowledge and it starts to become something. But it becomes something that I can never quite nail. And the enjoyment comes from the perpetual revolving around and failure of the thing. There's one story I want to tell you that, maybe captures this and it's a guy goes into this bakery right this guy called Seamus he goes into a high-end bakery in New York and it's got a little coffee section right and uh, he goes up to the guy behind the counter and says listen I'd like you to make me a cake and uh, it doesn't matter what the cake is but I need it to have a, a letter A on the top and the guy goes, yeah, fine, absolutely. You know, we're a very busy cake shop, so you're going to have to give us a week. Come back next Monday. Seamus says, absolutely, no problems. So Seamus goes away, comes back next Monday with his docker, gives it to the guy and says, just here for the cake. And goes, oh, yeah, no problems, here you go. Puts the cake down, and Seamus is like, oh, oh, dear, oh, dear. And the guy's like, what's wrong? You said it could be any cake. He says, oh, yeah, that's not a problem at all. No, it's the A. He says, you've done a capital A. i don't want a capital a sorry when i said a i meant a lower case a i just thought you would do that i thought you know i'd have to have said uppercase a for you to do an upper case a he's like i really wanted it to be a lower case a uh and the guy's like seriously yeah it's really important and so the guy goes yeah yeah okay okay i'll i'll fix it sorry i should have asked i should have clarified it listen come back next week so seamus leaves week later comes back picks up the cake there you go lower case a seamus is like Oh, I don't want to be trouble. I feel so bad. He says, This is embarrassing. But he says, I wanted to be cursive. I thought you would do a cursive A, not like that kind of block A, right? Um, and the guy's seriously like, Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, I don't want to be difficult, but that's kind of what I want. That's what I need. And the guy's like, Okay, you're, you're what? Well, who is this guy? You know? He's like, Okay, I'll do that. But that's the last time. You come in next week with, with uh, that letter and it's cursive. You have to accept it. I'm not making any more changes. Seamus is like 100% totally understand. I feel really bad, but I appreciate it. So a week goes by, Seamus comes back in, and uh, the guy who owns the shop's like, oh no, here he is, right? Pulls out the cake and says, there you go. It's a lowercase cursive A on top, right? I'm not doing any changes. Are you happy? Seamus smiles, goes, absolutely perfect. That's exactly what I wanted. Yeah, thank you so much. And the guy says, oh, listen, I'll get a box for you. And Seamus goes, oh, no, no, he says, it's okay. He says, I'll just eat it here, right? Now, the thing about the story that I like is, like, he's done so much work to get this A perfect. And yet, whenever it comes to being perfect, he says, oh, I just want to eat it here, right? It's not for any special occasion, it's just he just wants to eat the cake, right? Well, that is like the sacred object, but in a, in a positive way. And the name for this in psychoanalysis is, it's called objet putti a. And it's always done with a small a, a cursive small a. So it's kind of, that's why the story kind of works. I think it's the, the a on top of the cake is what allows him to desire the cake, right? Without that a, Seamus doesn't desire the cake. But as soon as the a is right, he can consume the cake. And that's what it's like in life is we need these Objects and these things that we desire that make life meaningful that make us want to devour life and go into it and live our lives But if we are pursuing that object Then we're always going to be disappointed But if we can change our relationship to the object and go like the object is it's called object putia doesn't exist It's just this small Vocation it's that thing that that actually makes life worth living Uh, when we find that uh, our our satisfaction is in dissatisfaction. Our satisfaction is in constantly failing to get it. But having it in reality in some way, motivating us, and that allows us to live creatively, live deeply, and also to be freed from the ontological, ontic and moral dimensions of sin that come out of the sacred object. Okay, thank you for listening. I'm just going to look at the questions and comments and see if there's anything... Uh, any questions people are asking Uh, i wonder why the prohibition equals the oedipal father but the super ego equals a serpent rather than god yeah so this is my kind of my reading of the oedipal story as it's within um, uh, the story of adam and eve the funny thing is right so your question is right why is the the prohibition is the father but the superego is the servant well yeah because in well in the eatable story the father is the prohibition and so in the story of garden of eden god the father is the prohibition and in psychoanalysis the the father figure is often not the father but the, there there has to be in a sense a figure that breaks the unity between the primary caregiver and the child right otherwise psychosis kind of results so there is the there is kind of the, the breaking in of the of the uh, original unity which isn't really an original unity sorry but as uh, that 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 relationship between the primary caregiver and the child is broken but the very breaking of that which is the prohibition is what then causes you to desire to fix that that gap and then what happens which is called um, separation is whenever you, you're you not allowed to fix it, you have to find substitutes. So the child has to find substitutes for the mother. So one of the first substitutes is like a security blanket, a transitionary object, an object that is th- the mother, but not the mother, right? Or the teddy bear is a transitionary object that is kind of both the primary caregiver, but also not the primary caregiver. Um, that's really the first substitutionary object. Um, So um, in terms of the superego, in the Oedipus story, there isn't the superego. That's the funny thing. That's why I think almost the story of the Garden of Eden would have been a better one for Freud. Uh, The superego, but is the voice that is always telling you that you have to do something in order to achieve success. And the technology for exorcism of the superego or the serpent is grace, because grace is the idea that you don't have to do anything so grace is kind of the the um the technology of exorcism within theology and it's not dissimilar from coming to the cure and psychoanalysis which is kind of being able to uh being able to live within your reality rather than seeking to fundamentally uh, escape it but to live within it in a in a in a in a antagonistic way that's important the true psychoanalysis is not about adaptation to your environment. It's about a productive misadaptation to your environment, um, and that's what I'm talking about by the prestige. When you find a vocation that makes you want to change the world in some way and transform things, that is a productive, creative maladaptation to the world. You do want to be adapted to the world. This is the problem with counselling and a lot of therapies. Uh, let's see. And there's an actual Seamus here hi Seamus we've talked before uh, do you think that intellectual understanding investigation more than contemplative practices meditation can develop or accelerate uh, a religious life as the cure to desire and lack? all right very good question okay so question Seamus is asking is right wh- wh- you know how, how effective is the intellectual life in experiencing this movement through the the, um, privilege, turn and prestige. And okay, so here's two two ways of thinking about it. One is it doesn't do much good at all, right? The intellectual is fun, it does does good stuff, it's really enjoyable to understand. It's also important if you're gonna try to help people go through this experience, because you've got to understand what you're trying to do. But it's not the work itself, it's like it's a reflection on the work, it's not work. And so that view is more like the psychoanalytic idea, which is you have to go through, you have to have certain technologies, certain practices that help you enter into this, whether that is analysis, meditation, as you mentioned, Seamus, uh, whether it's, um, uh, you know, some sort of other kind of practices you have. Um, And then, and then other people, there's the other view, smaller view, which is that the intellectual life can be an important part of the cure. That the intellectual life can help you kind of experience this loss uh, and this kind of notion of the return of the as depth i mentioned and i i guess i guess i would say that I, i'm very sympathetic to the idea that we need practices that's why half of power of theology is transformance art practices that help us enter into this which means you don't need the theory nobody needs the theory right You can have practices that help you experience this at a very existential level without knowing what's going on. That's why in psychoanalysis, nobody, the analyst doesn't talk to you about the theory. They don't need to talk to you about the theory. They're doing the practice. And I'm more inclined to think that. However, I do think that the intellectual life can be a form of cure. It can be one weapon in your arsenal for doing this. I I do think philosophy has a place. I think philosophy can be part of the cure. Um, but if philosophy was the major part of the cure then that would be bad first of all because most people aren't interested in doing philosophy (laughs) and um, uh, also thinking is very limited really. So in answer to your question, my thought on this and I would love to explore this more and think about it more but my thought is you need practices generally, you need community, you need to go through this. That's why I believe in the the, uninstitutional form Right. Transformance art that that is rituals that help you enter into this music and art and poetry and uh, talks and all of that. But also uh, like sermons. But uh, also that uh, I think there are certain philosophers like Kierkegaard and Hegel who who find the cure through deep study and contemplation. So maybe um, I kind of I almost want to see philosophy as a type of practice. It can be a type of practice. Joshua says, "Is there some conceptual overlap here with James Carse's finite and in oh uh, finite and infinite games, where he says the only purpose of the infinite game is to prevent it from coming to an end?" to keep everyone in play. So I don't know the book, but I love the quote. So let me read that again. The only purpose of the game, the infinite game, is to prevent it from coming to an end, to keep everyone in play. I mean, yeah, I, I don't know the book, but that's a beautiful description because here's the thing, is that potentially progress, and I use the word progress with a lot of caveats and, and uh, because I don't like the word progress in general, because. The progressive notion is we're moving forward, whereas the, the notion of uh, paratheology with uh, psychoanalysis is we're moving deeper and deeper into contradiction. We're moving deeper and deeper into a type of lack, but that movement into more contradiction into a never ending process is what generates progress. So progress is not the aim. It is the, um, it is the unintended result of the game itself, the infinite game. So in other words basically I mean Adam Smith thought this about capitalism when when Adam Smith talked about the invisible hand of capitalism he meant uh, that he, he believed that capitalism is a kind of fantasy right as in the idea that if we have loads of money we're going to be happy I right? thought of course that's ridiculous right there's obviously a certain amount of money you want in order to be able to have your basic needs met and so, but once you get to there, then exponentially growing isn't gonna do anything. But he felt it was a necessary illusion to make technological progress within society. So as long as there's enough people who are caught up in the, in the fantasy, in the illusion that they could be really happy if they had lots, then the, the, um, the result of that is they create things just to make money, but those things actually improve our lives. Now that, is a form of what you see in analysis like it's a different form but but this idea that that we can be uh you know pursuing the game and in the, the repeated failures to bring it to an end we generate uh something productive i guess even to, to use the idea of a game the constant infinite nature of a sports game means that people are getting better you know maybe like you know, we see like Progress being made in terms of how fast people can run and the type of training they do in order to reach this goal But actually winning winning the the race is not going to be that exciting It's all the the preparation, but it's the the fantasy of winning the race that keeps you doing it And the, the, the difference that I'm talking about is that once you see through the game, it doesn't take away your desire it doesn't put you into quietism it just allows you to reframe the very way that you desire. You desire in a different mood. And that's what the apocalyptic vision is, is that not not that the world is reformed to fit our desires, but our desires are reformed so that we no longer need to kind of like frenetically pursue something. But still we, we have the infinite game going. We just now see through it. And there are people who would say, and I would argue this is that modes of production economic systems work by hiding the truth by not exposing you to the truth whereas i'm like once you see the contradiction once you see the um the fantasy it it will destroy a certain type of economics but it won't destroy people's desire to improve themselves and to do well i don't know if i'm waffling that um let's see one more question is at the end this is from Paprika Ramsey. Uh, is, uh, da, da, da. Is, is it being with the lack of desire somehow? Oh, I, sorry, I think this is part two of the question. Sorry, yes. Creative, maladapt- creative adaptation. The problem with therapy, as you just mentioned, can you go through, into that more yet? I'm trying to understand what paratheology would see as the goal or good way of living. And how do you like it? Is it being with the lack of desire somehow, such as uh, some say sitting with mystery instead of always trying to find the truth? Yes, all of that's great. So you're asking basically, you know, mention the thing about therapy. First of all, I'll do that. Is there kind of two ways of thinking about therapy, right? There's what you see in counseling and a lot of uh, life coaching and a lot of kind of non analytically influenced therapies, where the idea is to kind of like adapt you to your world better so adaptation and integration and containment so these are the kind of goals to to integrate you into your world to get rid of the contradictions in your life and the contradictions in your life are symptoms a symptom is a is an amalgamation a conglomeration of 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 conflictual desires you want to shout at someone you want to keep your mouth shut so you grind your teeth or you've got a bad, bad, you kind of, um, you, you want to go home and you also don't want to go home. So sometimes you forget your keys. So the forgetting of your keys all the time is this really weird symbol or symptom of a conflictual desire, whatever it is. And the idea in a lot of therapies is, is to eventually talk through your conflictual desires until you're no longer in conflict, where you find your true self and your true desires and you are at one with yourself. But in psychoanalytic idea and paratheology, the idea is, no, you, you, the first contradiction you get is you go like, I grind my teeth. And maybe you're talk to the person. You go, well, you know, it's funny because you say you hate your job, but you have to you have to be, you know, kowtow to your boss. So it's interesting that you have to keep your mouth shut, but you want to shout. And then you talk that through and the symptom kind of begins to relieve because you're realizing that's a symptom of that's, that's talking about that. But then you go, oh, that's funny, because that's what I feel like with my partner. And so now the contradiction is not resolved, it's gone deeper. It was it was a sore jaw into your work, now relation to your partner. And then you might go, oh, and it's funny, actually, that was my relationship with my parents. When I grew up, I, I was scared, I wanted to shout, I wanted to scream, and yet I had to be really obedient and couldn't say anything. And so then it goes right back into then this more deep relationship with your parents. And then finally, you kind of like, eventually realize that, that there's a contradiction in the very heart of life itself, like uh, in terms of uh, having to make compromises. And the cure is when you're able to, at that deepest level, accept the contradictions that you are, not get rid of them. So one is about getting rid of the contradictions to become one. And the other is a type of enjoyment of the non-oneness where you're able to find a way of living and finding depth in life Precisely by embracing the contradiction, and in philosophy that's called absolute knowledge in the work of Hegel, where he says life progresses not by overcoming contradictions but by deepening them until we realise a contradiction is part of reality, which is what we see in physics with quantum positioning, in biology with evolution, in mathematics with Gödel's incompleteness theorem. Right? These are with the unconscious. Uh, with Freud. These are various ways in seeing that there's contradiction hard baked into reality itself. Um, oh, and then you mentioned in relation to that, sorry, um, the idea of sitting with mystery instead of always trying to find the truth. Yeah, and I want to define mystery. There's a beautiful essay about, called the, On the Ontological Mystery by Gabriel Marcel, and we just did a reading group on it actually as part of Patreon. And he defines mystery simply as well, he defines problem as. Anything that we try to solve from a distance, we separate ourselves and we look at something from a detached position, right? And we do that in everyday life. Mystery, he says, is where we look at an issue that we are immersed in, where the data encroaches on our very reality. So we can't kind of get a distance from it because we're in it right whether that's love or hate or whether it's self-consciousness it's 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 realizing that we are within the problem and he says that that's a more basic way of being and you know the 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 problematic way of looking at life comes out of that but the more basic form of life is where we participate in it and uh, this is a you know a way of saying that that there is a certain mystery that we need to feel comfortable in but it's not a mystery of epistemological humility so it's not it's not the it's not the mystery of liberalism of kind of liberal theology that we don't know everything it's a weird kind of mystery in which we do know something we know that life cannot be fully grasped not because of a lack of knowledge but because reality itself is not at one with itself and so There's a, there's a slight difference, but yeah. So depending on how you talk about mystery, it's like not trying to get rid of mystery, but seeing that mystery is hard baked into reality. Um, The first step to that is, is mystery as in, I don't know everything. And then the second step is going, oh, it's not just that I don't know substantive reality. It's that reality itself isn't substantive. It's not at one with itself. Now, by the way, I've started going away from my promise of doing an introductory course, but this is the Q (laughs) and A. Uh, Anton says I think Pete is caps blind today I don't know what that means I, I don't know if I want to know what it means <laughs> um, let's see all right I think I think oh um, yes somebody put I see a question Bill put question in caps I didn't see it very sorry about that Bill says Freud's lost object same as objet petit a." okay Bill right yeah um So I've been using the term sacred object, that's the kind of term I like to use, connects it with the theological tradition. It's basically similar to the lost object. Um, There's two different ways in which this kind of object that's not nothing and not something, this object that has every perfection except for existence, there's kind of two ways it can be talked about, das ding, the thing, and obje putia, and they're slightly different and uh, maybe the 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 difference between them is das ding the uh, the thing is is like the experience of a lack that is overwhelming like in a horror movie there is this something that is everywhere but nowhere you can't see it it's kind of like this there's something that threatens to destabilize your very existence pull everything apart the das ding that is the lack that is this something out there and objet putia is like the lack as it's kind of like symbolized and, and in the world and uh, uh something that you can approach that's the way i understand it in brief but actually there's um there is a episode about that on um that todd mcgowan talks about it uh, on Why theory so if you want to look at their their podcast on objet Putia, i think um you know they might be able to define that a bit a bit better but yeah there is this slight you know, there's like these two different terms that are being used to describe a type of lost object. Das ding, which is the just the experience of loss itself that's kind of out there. And then there is the experience of lack that is kind of like more manageable and in the world. Um, that kind of generates our desire. And I think that's one way of talking about the difference. But yeah, the lost object and the sacred object are you know, these are kind of pretty much the same um oh i did miss i did miss some other questions did i but she and kate says but did she miss like the cake yes you, you could only like the cake because of object a he couldn't like the cake until he had the a right that's the point like, we can't enjoy life until we have the kind of thing that makes life enjoyable and that's what people lose when they're depressed Is they lose object a they lose um they lose not just the object of their desire, but the object cause. So, say you're with a partner and you lose them, you don't just lose an object in the world that you desired, you also lose what allowed you desire everything. So you lose desire of everything, and a part of analysis is getting your desire working again, getting you able to desire stuff again. So uh, we all need the we need we all need the A and the cake to make life desirable. Um, And we have to realize that it's not the A that we want. uh, It's the A that allows us to want. We'll stop there. Thank you so much for being part of this part one. Uh, We'll be doing part two next week. and We'll look at the lack of the secret or the secret of the lack. Thanks very much. Take care.